Faust here with Permaculture Perspectives. And this is number two in our Permaculture Living Lands Trust Listening Series. And today you're going to hear me talking with Dale Hendricks, a close friend and neighbor from our roots in Chester County, Pennsylvania, Dale has been a mentor, an important teacher, and really showing the way for many young, aspiring nursery people wanting to learn about grafting, propagation, and you'll hear us talking about all kinds of really interesting history and background to Dale's journey with permaculture and his work with us at the Permaculture Living Lands Trust around some of the seminal plantings that we're wanting to have a real long-term plan for. So thanks for listening. This is the PLLT Listening Series number two with Dale Hendricks. Yeah, yeah, we're back. I think I think that'll work. Um, so how's it going there? Yeah, just wonderful. Just wonderful. Had a young hippie helper uh, here for a couple hours uh, doing some prep. Uh, he was broad forking some areas where I'm gonna plant uh, different uh, lots of seeds, as you might suspect. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Pawpaws, Hershey persimmons, Hershey honey locust seeds. Um, all these things I'm still growing, kind of bare root tree seedlings in the ground. And uh, trying to do a little less potted things on speculation because they're all oh, maintenance intensive, uh, potted things and resource intensive. Yeah, yeah. So uh, trying to free myself up where I'm still growing lots of plants, but I'm free to go canoeing for a few days and collect seeds and whatnot like a a late middle-aged fellow should be able to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) in an ideal world i'd goof off and fish and collect seed more you know yeah it's so great well dale i'm gonna i'll set this up and i'm just gonna say it's so great to have you here on uh what i call my permaculture perspectives podcast because i think it's you know so much of it it's just all a matter of perspective you know, and yeah, I, sure. and and I've always really enjoyed our conversations and our time together. And your work in this field is something that I have a lot of respect for, and uh, really honored to continue to you know carry the torch together in the work there. And um, you you've uh, I've I've learned so much from you, and and some of the details of what that is is what I'd love to talk more about with you know with you today as far as um anything you'd like to share about uh i don't know if you or i you know kind of when we've hung out have talked about specifically your what i've been calling your permaculture journey per se right like like when when did you feel like it was a term that you could in any way align with or let's say you know just you know add your repertoire vocabulary to describe all the uh various i know uh thoughts and modalities and um you know things that you've been exploring through your life which i i just want to 
hear more of what you'd like to share and also um you know specifically with regards to what david and i are starting with the permaculture living lands trust what i'd love people who are listening to to start to get a sense of is what what you you know what what what's your what's your feeling your understanding your experience about um where's the need right now with um some of the the projects and the um plant work that you're that you're doing that is your you know clearly your passion and your life and uh yeah so late, latest projects and uh what what kind of brought you on the on the journey that you're on that you'd well, like to well, share Dale. Uh, three or four humongous topics here let's try to yeah feel. <laughs> briefly um been in in horticulture pretty much forever right since 75 when i needed work back in the day and discovered i i like growing plants and, and worked for a great outfit in the lancaster area and worked for them for many years until i jumped off on my own back in 88 and decided to grow more native plants so was one of the two owners and founders of north creek nurseries so we were propagators so we took up zillions of plants and plugs as starters or transplants and we kind of were one of the kind of early adapters and cheerleaders for grow more natives grow more natives so but the permaculture part really started when i made a turn got out of that you know good size business that i was so fortunate it was quite successful it still is mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Uh, I got out of my half of it, and the current owner, Steve, is my ex-business partner, still runs it in independent hands. But back in 2010, yep. uh, I took a PDC, and I kind of heard about permaculture for years from you and others, you know? Mm-hmm. We were talking mm-hmm. about this, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and we kind of briefly met. Uh, and uh, yep. so my teacher was Ben Weiss out of Lancaster, who's really mm-hmm. excellent. Can't recommend young Ben uh, enough. That's and great. Yeah, I've heard great things about his work. Turned my life around a good bit to where I saw a lot of deeper connections, right? I was happy to grow more natives and have a more nature-friendly landscape, but I never thought of things like, well, geez, why can't we invite humans into this landscape? Why is it always great for the birds and butterflies and bees, which is always great, of course, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that type of horticulture wasn't as human-focused or human-food-focused. It didn't really think of us as... as people wanting food, medicine, shelter, and beauty. Yeah. The beauty part they got. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of things just really came together from an excellent teacher and that good perspective. So maybe we could start there. Yeah. Yeah, thank Give you. The next one. You, you hit me with three or four questions. Oh, well, yeah, you know, really, I was thinking I'd love to hear about, um, you know, what are your the projects um one that i wrote to you about would be would be great to get into some of the history behind your uh, discovery let's say of the hershey plantings and um you know maybe from that take us into anything you want to as far as uh uh, latest projects that you're inspired about that you're getting into with um tree crops or things along those lines so like sure yeah um, yeah, so most permies uh, know the book called Tree Crops, 
A Permanent Agriculture, written by J. Russell Smith, and the most recent edition is like 55 or so. I mean, an old book. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. a lot of people in the permaculture movement are pretty sure the originators of permaculture, uh, Holmgren and Mollison, kind of thieved that byline of a permanent agriculture and made it permaculture. So they were really affected by this iconic book, Tree Crops. It can't be recommended too highly. And mm-hmm. there in that book, he raved about his buddy, John Hershey, nearby in Downingtown, PA. So we, it's Eastern Pennsylvania, a southeast corner. So basically, I had friends that were at the Backyard Fruit Growers, a local Lancaster, Chester County group. And my buddy Max says to me, hey, I think I know where some of those Hershey trees are. Uh, and we were recently reminded of it by an article by a guy named Ben Richmond who wrote it in the, I think it was 016, early in the year, um, Permaculture Design Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, or it used to be the Permaculture Activist, the American one. Yep, and, um, Peter Baines. That, that article was called Standing Tall Amidst the Sprawl. In other words, John Hershey died back in 67, but this article was kind of saying, hey, you know what? <laughs> the trees are still there. Isn't that great? Look at this productivity. So me yeah. and Max and Zach Elfers and a couple others went over there. It was like the scales fell from our eyes. We could still find rows and rows of these trees. Um, so basically what Hershey was trying to do was uh, he was hired by the, the feds, by the predecessor of the USDA, uh, Agriculture Department in the U.S., and his job was to get farmers to plant more trees to have less soil erosion. So he got mm-hmm. God's ideal job of getting paid to collect the best, most improved trees for eastern and midwest farmers. Yeah. So we built this humongous collection of plants for what we now call agroforestry. Yeah. Before the term was invented, this is what he was doing, and we got to sniff around and say, wow, these trees are still here. Right. Right, right, so, these vestiges. Yeah, briefly, that's that's the Hershey story. Now, there's a lot of buildings and churches and suburbia development. Some of the trees are disappearing, and I hazard, you know, three-quarters of them are gone from what we can tell he planted. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, there's a lot of selected wonderful plants of mulberry, persimmon, honey locusts, chestnuts, you name it. Mm-hmm. So yep. that's been a great rabbit hole where we've told a lot of people about it, taken tours, which you've led with me and others, and opened yep. people's eyes. Hey, look at this. What a legacy, for one thing. You know, we can have productive landscapes. We can have restorative, diverse landscapes and have cleaner water, better climate, uh, more resilience. Yeah, yeah. He was trying to get the the farmers to see the wisdom in this. A little firewood, a little timber, a little shade for your cows, chickens, pigs, um, diverse income. So sadly, all of that was kind of crushed under the... steamroller of industrial ag. Mm-hmm. His problem mm-hmm. was he was way ahead of his time. But, you know, a few of us, and you know, not just us, many, many people have explored and written about his works. 
just that we've kind of rediscovered it recently. Right. So I don't know how much more you want me to go on. <laughs> well, no, that's an interesting. I, let's. Uh, I'd like to pick up the the thread where you were going with, um, you know, wh- what, uh, how we've had this. Let's, I guess, to be polite, a lull in uh, support economically socio-culturally for things like what you were just describing that you know jay russell smith and hershey were working on this uh pursuit in genetic diversity of tree crops that had multiple uses that that you know such an important place to be doing horticultural plant and um landscape development in and yet it's uh fallen out due to as you said the um industrial interests in ag who've manipulated you know funding through lobbying and legislative measures to make it so that all the money flows to the industrial version and now we're you know how do we in effect do you think pick up this um this this torch as i've been calling it this work this uh real work i like to use the gary snyder term the the Zen. Are you familiar with Gary's work? A little bit. West Coast poet. Yep. The wonderful things. Uh, but go ahead. Yeah. Gary Seiner wrote some poets. You know, he wrote uh, one collection called Turtle Island. And um, Gary uses this term that's kind of like the, uh, the way the Zen identify with this idea in Buddhism of right action, right behavior, right livelihood. And then they kind of leave it open-ended as to how you define right. That's up to your own ethical sensibility. And uh, and I think that we can call... Uh, Gary introduces the term real work. And he poses the question, you know, what is real work? What's the real work? And, you know, I would I would suggest that planting a legacy, planting of a landscape that both provides abundance from these tree crops that we're talking about, you know, and heirloom annuals that are an important part of our human cultural way of providing food as well, right? Um, just, mm-hmm. to, just to speak to that, because it, it's an interesting theme I've been encountering to potentially risk going off on diversion, but I want to come back to this, but... <laughs> You know, I've, I've been encountering this tendency in the tree crops community to sometimes think that the vision, so to speak, the collective vision, if there, you know, if there is one, but it seems like if there is one, that there's this tendency to say, oh, let's just cover all the corn and soy and wheat with tree crops. And I'm not suggesting this is what J. Russell Smith was necessarily saying. And and I'm, not, I'm also not trying to make a generalization where we in you know, one conversation tried to define how something that's kind of complex can happen. Like, what does the rollout of these tree crops look like at a landscape scale, right? But what what I'm getting at here is there's this tendency to be thinking that um, we're going to just replace all open fields with tree crops and that that's, that's kind of the goal or something, right? Well, yeah, um, against oversimplification, you'll you'll certainly find us cross permies, right? So we're thinking of ecosystems and, and matching the type of plant palette, if you will, and, and patterns of um, growing and planting that suits our area, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so in the exactly. We, we might have more um, you know, the prairies and grasslands and grazing, uh, but uh, with some trees right here in the east, uh, it rains enough that you know trees want to grow. Yeah. So we're yep. just looking to um, uh, blend in uh, some some trees that work in some circumstances. But yeah. let's let's get specific. So I got a young buddy named Austin Unruh who's got a business, I think it's called Trees for Grazers. You can look him up. He's in mm-hmm. eastern Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll do a bunch of links and he might be a Definitely. guest. Yeah. So his, his uh, business is he'll get the grants, he'll help do the planning for farmers that want to plant trees. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he can get a grant to plant trees up to 300 feet from any little stream. Yeah. So if you look around eastern PA, half the farm is going to be covered with uh, 300 feet from any little stream, right? So you can get lots of trees planted that do all these ecological functions that we kind of know we don't even need to go into to where they can um, have, uh, you know, like I said, shade, a second or third crop diversity. It is an investment. There's no question. You know, you have to work to keep the deer and the cows and whatnot away Mm -hmm. from your, your young trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's fantastically rewarding work, and it's um, um, the kind of legacy we'd want to leave. So Austin does a lot of this, and he's getting a lot of farmers who want expanded buffers, you might say, that can be grazed. So oh, that's great. Have to, yeah, it doesn't have to be just trees. Oh, we're reforesting this. That's right. What John Hershey was really doing was putting rows of trees that provided light shade, almost full sun. Uh, he wasn't really doing forest landscaping or forest gardening so much as he was putting agroforestry, rows of trees, and maybe some shrubs underneath yeah. uh, to where you could have grazing in between and you could have crops in between, whatever was more practical or wanted. So yeah. it would be half sun, half trees, let's say. So right. just a million right. ways to do it. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is preserve the germplasm in these trees, so we're collecting seed, we're doing cyan wood. Uh, not just myself, but a lot of people. Uh, Zach Elfers mm-hmm. has got um, nursery mm-hmm. here in Southeast PA, a, a good young buddy. Uh, Max yeah. Askell's written a lot on this. Yeah. So we'll put some articles and writings by those guys. But Yeah, we'll put those are, in the... De, we had to interject real quick. We'll definitely put those in the footnotes, like you said, to this, uh, to this podcast and for folks listening will be interviewing zach elfers uh in our next session too we're uh oh good yeah we're calling these our pllt listening sessions so ever so briefly you know we can lead from these trees and what happened to his landscape right so yeah or she died earlier than he wanted to at 67 or 8 and um his land wasn't preserved, so it did become largely suburbia. So that, that does lead us to the, the Permaculture Living Lands Trust, where we do need, number one, a way to preserve 
landscapes that were cared for by humans, right? So that it's not just the leave no footprints, leave nature alone kind of model of conservation, which isn't all bad as far as it goes, but what mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the traditional Absolutely. conservation doesn't do is uh, deal humans and human settlement in, and especially in these regenerative ways, right? So yep. these... Um, Very well um, said. Yeah, so yeah. you want to talk about that little rabbit hole more? Well, I think I think um, you know I think you know it, it ties in for me the area that I wanted to explore with you that this other thinker just to reference various people who you know are thinking along similar lines. There's this guy Earl Ellis who's a professor out of Maryland that I'll I'll send you some recordings of. He just happens to be you know a university head who is talking permaculture solutions and one of his framings that i like is he talks about you know this term and you've probably come across it in other places but shared landscapes right and shared landscapes becomes a really powerful kind of framing because it's basically saying well there's vast areas of the planet right now that we share with existing ecosystems and biological communities. Let's think about how to make them more eco-complex and biodiverse rather than this notion of uh, E.O. Wilson's 50% nobody goes on it version of conservation, right? But to recognize that there's actually a vast amount of conservation opportunity you know, literally and figuratively right in our backyards when we start to think at a broader landscape scale about how much of the land space is actually already occupied by human activities. And to say, in effect, that it's an either or is one of the big mistakes, right, of of much of the Western um, thinking on this, it seems. Yeah, yeah. So, and we, we do a fair amount with that here. The idea that even if you have an early successional woodland, meaning our, our place here in southeast Pennsylvania was a remnant of a farm, was grazed 60, 70 years ago. So we have a lot of uh, quote-unquote invasive plants, uh, multiflora rose and whatnot, that, um, and not much good high-quality natives that we love in the understory. So mm-hmm. what we've done is... Uh, is add the species we like by scattering seed. You know, it's called rewilding, and I'm sure Zach will talk about it more, but mm-hmm. it looks like these ramps were always here. So since 2010, we've been scattering tens of thousands of seeds. So I've got acres of ramps coming up everywhere, oh, and how much money did I spend doing that? Zero. Yeah. I went out, knew where the ramp patches were, remembered in the fall that the ramp seeds are ready when the pawpaws are ripe, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> September, mm-hmm. go out and collect them and scatter them in, in habitat. So, yeah, enhancing wild spaces, be that on private property or uh, public rights away, roadsides, or even the edges of parks, is really wonderful to add productivity and diversity to spaces. So, mm-hmm. there's many reasons why a lot of our you know productive, edible, medicinal, wonderful na- native plants. Aren't, aren't out there, right? We uh, we even need a little more deer hunting. I always tell people that you know, um, cars are not the best predator for deer. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's the situation we have in most of the East and Mid-Atlantic, where there's so many deer, there's not much trilliums or native lilies, which used to beautify the edges of forests and all. The deer have eaten them all. (laughs) So it's it's a complex system. A, we can rewild effectively by matching land and habitat, and that's worked well with, you know, the ramps, but also with the Virginia bluebells and lilies and several other crops that we we have here in the woods. So that's a a whole other mm, fun technique that um, uh, helps helps us leave a great legacy mm-hmm. also and think mm-hmm. of what you know John Hershey left it out, out in Downingtown he's long gone but the story the writings the, the uh, selected varieties you know we brought up here a little Noah's Ark of his uh, persimmons so we have seven kinds of his persimmons that were growing for cyan wood so we don't have to trespass on the uh, church side yard to quietly get pieces of the Hershey trees to preserve yeah. uh, we can grow them ourselves so yeah. that's all happening in real time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what what are some of your propagation pursuits this year what, what were some of those you were starting to tell me a little when we first got on our call about um, some what your methods are that you're doing and some of the things you're you're growing out if you could share a little about that I'd love to hear. Sure, sure. So I made that change of life when I got out of uh, North Creek uh, back in the beginning of '09, and kind of became a full-time hippie permie guy who uh, um, had a little micro-enterprise nursery at home. So here at mm-hmm. home I have green light plants. And for a while I grew a lot of potted perennials and, and trees, all manner of edibles and natives and pawpaws and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So now I'm... I'm trying to um, morph away from having so much potted inventory growing more um, more in the ground. So I have a lot of seedlings of pawpaws and uh, selected Hershey honey locust seedlings and yeah. persimmons just going in and, and other tree seedlings. So just trying to morph my um, work in a in a in a way that seems to make sense. But I just love collecting and cleaning seeds and sowing seeds. So just this morning I had uh, my young part-time helper, Trevor, get the old broad fork out that uh, came from Rebel Garden Tools, highly recommended in Lancaster, PA. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. deep, deep aerate and um, loosen up the soil so I can plant more of these seedlings out in rows. So it's, um, you know, always enjoying growing and collecting. So some of these seedlings will be understock, i.e. will graft um, varieties on top of them, yep. or they'll just be sold as bare root seedlings for the likes of Austin and others. Yeah. farmers going with these. Uh, so, yeah, we, you know, have a kind of diverse army homestead here you know come come visit mulberry season i've got 20 varieties in the ground <laughs> uh-huh. so nice. you know having fun just growing crops to see what does well around here yeah so we can then say hey you know if you're growing things or i've got some of my young buddies that have nurseries and saying hey i've got sign what are these improved varieties do you want these so, you know, as we get older and older, 
think more of our job is mentoring and encouraging and connecting and helping out and supporting uh, other growers yeah. who are doing more of this. So, yeah. uh, my buddy Donna Bolas has a nursery called Fernley in Lancaster area. So I've got several of them out, and I'm saying, grow stuff, grow stuff. Everyone's come to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's yeah. that part of what we do also. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're also seeing that is that what I'm hearing you say there's a little bit of a production bottleneck as far as where the plant materials are available for people like the growers you know you're saying are are still um coming to you quite a bit. Well, yeah, so um, you know trying to avoid other deep rabbit holes. Look at horticulture like many trades, right? You have different very distinctive streams going through it. So ornamental horticulture is often very chemical intensive. It's often growing a lot of patented plants, which you need permission to grow, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. But there's more and more small people or designers or permie installers and whatnot who want non-patented, locally adopted, sustainably grown plants. So it seems like every county needs three, four, five, six of these nurseries, right? Not just trees, but all the cool native perennials and non-native perennials and comforts and whatnot. So there's opportunities in what we might call regenerative or restorative horticulture. That isn't so chemically intensive, uh, heat and <laughs> um, fossil fuel intensive, mm-hmm. as a lot of ornamental horticulture is. So yeah. um, we're trying to do examples, mentoring, and tours. You know, we have a lot of visitors here, you know, yeah. and you know, how we can, um, you know, propagate the plants. Uh, in a low-tech way, when is the ideal time to divide your Solomon seals when they'll all live? Things like that. So as time goes by, it's also the relationships and the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Talk to me, Andrew. I, uh, yeah... I could oh, that's forever on all these topics. Oh no, that's great. I I appreciate you sharing about the the different um, grow you know the growing pursuits, literally and figuratively. And uh, I think um, you know this I the the uh, opportunity to grow them as as multifunctional landscapes as a way to. Uh, to roll this out more, I think, is um, an important feature of, you know, what I'd, what I'd love to hear. You know, what do you think are the, what are the needs that you're seeing as far as, um, I mean, you touched on it a little already, and that may be, you know, primarily what there is to explore. But just curious what your other, you know, experiences are, are there, are there other properties other than the Hershey ones that have stood out to you, or are there other uh, opportunities that um, you know you see when we think about how can we in effect bring back some of that vigor that we were seeing you know back in the 20s and 30s and 40s with uh, J. Russell Smith in that time period of, uh, of tree crop development do you, do you think we're all we're kind of seeing that with the young 
crowd that you're working with are they is it there's a lot of you know is is it heartening in your view the the number of people you're seeing drawn to this um tree crops livelihood tree crop advocacy work if we could call it that sure let's tell a brief story and he might have even been there when you were there so you and i andrew have led a few uh hershey tree tours in downingtown and different people hear about them and show up so this young guy named rj from our area shows up with his buddy andrew and rj uh in his late 20s by now and he's just taking over his wife's family farm just down the road from us yeah. The Hershey tour took him on this crazy change of life. So he was working for a, an orchard nearby called North Star Orchard. He was the chemical applicator for it. And it was okay job, but he wasn't nuts about it. As he's looking to morph over this family farm, we've put him in touch with Austin. Austin's there, oh, I want you to grow this. Can you grow me that? Young RJ now is, you know, jumping on working full-time for uh, Austin's outfit, growing all manner of trees and seedlings uh, right down the road from us. So he's using marginal space, mm-hmm. building soil with cover crops, transitioning from having rented the place out for, quote-unquote, uh, conventional ag, uh, to really regenerative soil-building practices. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean... Mm-hmm. To a lot of people, these things are invisible, but you and I choose to both be in and to mentor and encourage and, in your case, promote um, people doing this work of regeneration Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. is tremendously helpful. And um, so all that out of a Hershey tour, and he said, wow, these are cool plants. You know, how can I get started? Oh, well grow some for our buddy Austin. Yeah. Bing, bing, bing. You know, a few years later, uh, that farm is being uh, transitioned to be great to maybe even, um, you know, visit him and talk with him in, in a year or two. He's just getting going. So there's a lot of hopeful stories out there. Uh, they say, in a way, you you get what you concentrate on, right? So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the world is still beset by problems and full of tragedy and difficulty and fear and whatnot. That's all true, but yeah. that doesn't mean <laughs> we don't get choices of how we want to live and how we want to orient our lives and what what we want to leave as a legacy. Yeah. Uh, again, look at those trees, but I'm also a big believer in soil building and biochar, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- <laughs> tell, tell us about some of that. Tell me about some of that. What got you inspired about biochar and then some of what, what are you into now with it? And t- t- you know, and, and also to back up one more, you know, feel free to give a quick breakdown for folks because I'm um, both I could use a re-education on it, but uh, yeah, like what what is it? What inspired you about it? And um, and what what are you into now with it? Sure. Okay. Um, so generally speaking, biochar uh, is more or less a new name for charcoal in soil. So basically, scientists like special terms for everything. So they've nicknamed mm-hmm. biochar for charcoal that's 
you know, produce in order to go into soil or charcoal that's in soil. So that's basically biochar. But gotcha. what it is, is it's a long-term recalcitrant form of carbon. Uh-huh. So by that I mean once charcoal is in the soil, you can carbon date with it. It's there practically permanently. It'll last, you know, 500 to 10,000 or more years if you don't burn it. So mm-hmm. the reason I branched off into that when I said legacy was I remembered that the charcoal or biochar origin story I was told, you know, goes into the uh, Amazon basin in, in Brazil and, and places where mm-hmm. the soils are really known to be lousy and very low in organic matter, very acid, very clayey. But every now and then at these old village sites, the soil was beautiful and black. So if you go to Brazil today and you want to buy terra preta, which just means black earth soil with charcoal in it, it costs five times as much as other farmland. So (laughs) for one, there's huge economic value to this. But this is what I was saying when I was looking at my notes saying, oh, you want to leave a legacy. So those guys, generally speaking, a lot of Central Amazonian natives uh, have been gone since the mid-1500s in large, large amounts uh, for different reasons we can maybe talk about. But what did they need? They had high-carbon, lovely soils that last and last and last. And then... The charcoal also, because of continuing prairie fires, some of the reasons the prairie soils are still so good for agriculture is because a lot of the carbon in those soils is charcoal. Oh, okay. Call it, and that regular soil with no charcoal in it. If you till it and till it like our regular agriculture does, what you're doing is exposing it to air and you oxidize it. So the carbon, the sponginess, the darkness in that soil goes up up in the air, right? Yeah. Uh, So if you have prairie fires now and then, and every few years you leave a dusting of charcoal, before long you have... Tilty soils that are that are fluffy, that have high carbon content, that have aeration, that are deep, and that's what we have in these mala soils in the U.S. Midwest and many other places where there's grassland. So, both natural physics and humans on purpose make the lovely, lovely soils as another kind of what's the legacy you want to leave. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we what? we lost you there for a second, but we got you back. Ah, okay. You were yeah the lo- the lovely soils. What else would we want to leave, right? Well, right, high carbon soils, diversity, and hopefully you know stories and mentorships and um, you yeah. know wise practices, right? Yeah, how we can how we can steward landscapes, how we can give back and have good lives now, right? So um, we had to have huge opportunities to be, you know, contributors (laughs) to both long and short term, uh, both human and uh, all of creation um, impacts. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I sound like a preacher. You better well, put me under bi- control here. And, bi- <laughs> and biochar is part of the uh, 
part of the journey for you. What are you into with it now? What are you have you are you still doing cookings? Ah, okay, yeah. So basically I heard about biochar oh, back in oh nine, I guess it was, at the Ecological Landscape Association. Mm-hmm. A great little outfit that had meetings up in the Boston area. And um, it was great. It, it, it led me into the world of, of soil. So I'm also a big soil proponent, you know, what what a lot of people don't realize, and climate activists uh, need to be educated on a lot of these things, is that up to half the carbon, that the extra carbon that's up there in the atmosphere, <clears throat> it used to be in soils and ecosystems, right? Mm-hmm. So that we have the opportunity through what we started talking about, agroforestry or regenerative agro-permaculture, yeah. suck that carbon back down and put it in the most productive of possible places. <laughs> Trees, shrubs, plants, living soil. Yeah. So a lot of people don't really understand the, what you might call it, the um, the many carbon cycles, the living carbon cycles. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, climate, again, has been, uh, I would say, mm, uh, what's the word? Um, in- way oversimplified into emissions only, energy only uh, discussions. Yeah. It's way more uh, productive to look at how we can engage with living landscapes uh, mm-hmm. as, as a climate solution, yeah. like we were just outlining. Uh, so uh, I'm the biggest, you know, climate guy you'll find, but yeah. that doesn't mean um, reducing it to what's been called carbon fundamentalism. Uh-huh. <laughs> a lot more, a lot more happening there. Mm-hmm. Water cycles, the cooling of clouds, the transpiration from trees, yada yada. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Always more to the story is one of my other little expressions. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's so true, right? There is. Yeah, with, um, with, well, th- uh, thank you for that. A lot of really good, good information and viewpoints and thoughts there that I think it's, uh, it's good to sit with for a moment and think and, uh, you know, um, one of the things that we're really keen on, David and I and Lisa, our third third leg, who we aren't able to get to be on as many of our meetings as we could, but Lisa DePiano, uh, dear friend and colleague, she works at uh, University of Mass. She also grew up, interestingly, in uh, like outside of King of Prussia. Right, right. I've, I've given her the Hershey Tree Tour. Okay, cool. I got I got to meet her parents. And, oh. Uh, hi, Lisa, if you're out there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so the three, you know, one of the things that the three of us are really keen on is this idea of, of food shed or region-wide master planning for food security and for energy security and to start to... Um, and create collaborative efforts to achieve those, you know, in different areas, like so, so that we can, you know, begin to really show a vision that isn't, say, in a sense, only rolled out based on a piecemeal pattern that has to do with who's receptive to it right now, but where it actually becomes something, you know, where we can say, 
well, what does it look like to grow full diet year-round food supply for the East Brandywine or West Brandywine or Schuylkill River Valley watershed, right? Um, and that's, that's something that Lisa and I, we created curriculum around that for yesterday. We had a, a five-day class we created called Permaculture for Regional Planning. And so that... That work, I just wanted to share with you, you know, that kind of brief outline because it's kind of the the thing that ties it all together for me that I often find um, as a person who's very focused on getting the plantings out as well and seeing these landscapes implemented and the systems designs implemented. I also like to think a lot about um, our strategy so that we're taken seriously at a broad systemic level for the retrofit that's that's really needed. Um, ra- you know, rather than let's say expecting you know the present market in some way to be what uh, manifests these perennial um, longer term landscapes, I'm also. Wanting to see, you know, this combination that we're putting together with with these discussions with you and with other people who we have a lot of respect and admiration for to say, you know, what what does this look like if we really, you know, put together team designs that we bring to, you know, municipalities and, and planning boards and begin to say, you know, here's what a new food system looks like if you're, you know, because... I kind of, you know, I wonder if the climate, um, climate apocalypticism is the perfect storm in a sense that, you know, the permaculture community often talks about, like, watching the present system collapse and how as it collapses, people are going to come to us and the Amish to help them figure out how to bail out from the industrial breakdown, right? Well, uh, the way uh, I frame what, what permies do sometimes, it, it builds right into this, that we're folks that believe in taking both responsibility and leadership mm. and not waiting for the government or the market to deliver right. <laughs> solutions, right? right? We want solutions great way for us it. where people can... Uh, you know, grow food and medicine at their homes and uh, uh, have landscapes that are climate solutions. And I meant earlier to say that another job, the type of landscapes you and I make is they're very inspiring. When people come and say, oh, I've got to bring my mother here. She was raised in Romania. This is the kind of landscape Mm -hmm. you had. Chickens, ducks, animals, diverse plants, very little lawn. Yeah. So it, it's very yeah. good for, for humans. And that brings me back to your, your last point is that we need those big visions. The bigger and more connected we think, the more power and um, actual work mm-hmm. will get done. Mm-hmm. People are starving for um a hopeful future, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's why, you know, young people are happy to, you know, I have more offers of help than I can put people to work. Mm-hmm. Young folks need physical hard work that's satisfying and educational at once. Yeah. So everywhere we turn, we need 
this vision and connection that we're fortunate to have in, in permaculture Bill, we'll yeah. say for lack of a better term. No. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, yeah, bless you. You're a little more tuned into the larger scale planning world than I am. I have a tendency to be... Oh. And down all the time at yeah. <laughs> the trees and soil. Well, that, but uh, that's why we need, you know, communities and lots and lots of us and um, doing doing different things. So, um, you know, blessings on that. Yeah. Well, thank you, and you know, and, and blessings to your work. I mean, it is very much what inspires me to uh, wave that flag of the broader vision because I know I've got awesome people who I know who uh, <clears throat> can really grow out the landscape, you know, because it's it's part of what inspires me to do that broader scale thinking is to know you and know of the different people in the growing community and the plant community that you're connected with because um, I see an incredible potential and it needs some um, robust legal status and some broad scale comprehensive planning behind it <clears throat> so that yeah you know because it's yeah. a lot it's a work of passion and work of love people are going to do this work whether or not the system supports it in my view in a lot of ways and what we're working on is how to uh, protect preserve expand and and uh you know, have this work be something that actually has a lasting uh, influence and presence in the landscape and doesn't get bulldozed over and turned into another strip mall or parking lot. Well, you yeah, know? that's that's again the, the reason that Permaculture Living Lands Trust both exists and is, is really needed is to preserve loved living lands with people, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, not just all people. You know, I don't think your idea was to have my place turn into a golf course, let's say, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> to have um, uh, people in diverse and increasingly diverse uh, and increasingly productive and increasingly beauty landscapes. Um, increasingly beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, we're you know, looking to, as time goes by, make a transition to where we have our place permanently preserved, but that has the welcome mat out for, for people engaging with the landscape. Yeah. Uh, in ways that, you know, the regular conservancy or conservation groups um, don't really do. Uh, so there's a great opening for that kind of work, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you guys are off and running with that. Yeah, uh, well, th well, it's it's an honor to be working with you on it as, as well. And I really look forward to working with you more in person you know learning from you in the field and uh you know honestly apprenticing with you more as far as some of the practical skills that i'm wanting to brush up my abilities on of course you know propagation and grafting and those kinds of things are areas that i have lots to learn from you and i look forward to making the time when i'm down there you know to chilling more in person and and uh yeah 
It's, it's a pleasure to connect. Thanks for that kindness. I, I, I'm looking over my, my notes. The only major Dale topic I, I haven't covered here is the uh, native plants and invasive discussion. I don't know if we spent too much time or if you want to go go back in that particular corner of looking at landscape. Oh, no. we. I, I would, yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to take whatever time... You can you can continue to share with us. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? That's an important topic that uh, I'd love to hear your your uh, your viewpoint on. Well, yeah. So first, we'll start out with you know, geez, back in the eighties, um, you know, I became interested in growing natives. There was a uh, a little conference down in Western North Carolina at Cullowee, which is where West, Western Carolina University is. And um, suddenly I realized that people wanted native plants in the landscape for all these cool reasons. Mm -hmm. And then later on, Dr. Doug Tallamy came along and brought a lot of science to it saying, hey, if you want the maximum living landscape, and especially if you want songbirds, those guys need lots of insects to eat. And the great majority of insects are specialists, i.e., they won't just eat anything. They'll, you know, this insect likes hickories, and this one likes oak. Yep. So we've learned that local native plants in the landscape are more uh, kind and good for the, the rest of uh, you know, the birds, butterflies, bees, and whatnot. So that's been great. That made a lot of people love natives and be very excited that not only can they garden for beauty, but they can do a lot of good in the world. And yeah. that's great, and that really powered our business at North Creek, and um, it, it, it's been good to do. But movements grow and grow. <laughs> so I think what I've seen happen is what I might call native plant fundamentalism, right? Mm -hmm. Where suddenly you have native plants have this virtuous glow, and all other plants and aliens <laughs> are looked at with suspicion, right? Yeah. So what's happened is in many parts of the, the native plant world, you've got purism and oversimplification where a lot of the plants we eat aren't natives, right? So it's, <laughs> right. it's hard to have a fully native plant and have people uh, have have food there, right? <laughs> Tomatoes, uh, corn, you name it. Mm -hmm. It may be kind of vaguely native, but uh, set that aside. So we don't want to be measured by how much you hate the other guys, right? So that's that's what I'm starting to see. And mm -hmm. just because mm -hmm. I love natives doesn't mean I have to equally swear to hate the bad guys so much. So do, right. do we want to be at war with the landscape, right, all the time. So around here we have this, you know, quote unquote invasive rose called Rosa multiflora. That's a really tenacious prickers everywhere you go in the woods and edges. Yeah. And do I want more of them in the landscape? No. Right. But do I want to spend my time eradicating 100% of them? 
when they're everywhere outside of my little property boundaries anyway. Right. <laughs> I choose to add the species that I like and work and control them bit by bit as I can. There's different yeah. ways to do this. I can yeah. get goats. I haven't done that yet. But there's... Mm-hmm. We're not going to go backwards in the way the landscape is. It's not going to become like it was in 1491 again. Right. And the process of, quote, controlling or being at war with the bad guys is profoundly bad for psychology. You know, invasive mm-hmm. sounds like insurgents, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just don't want to be using warlike terms or language all the time. Yeah. So we have to figure that one out, but I just wanted to walk you through that. It's a whole fraught landscape, but um, one of my new expressions is resist authoritarian oversimplification, (laughs) right? It's not so simple as good guys and bad guys. Resist, could you say that one more time? Resist authoritarian oversimplification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That means the climate is about a little more than carbon, a little more than fossil fuels. There's much more involved. There's many more terms or uh, uh, points of engagement. Yeah. The same with the the plant thing. Mm -hmm. Our landscapes would be happier and better if they were like it was in 1491. But... We can't eradicate all these plants. We have to find ways of, of living with them and, you know, declaring peace with the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very, that little... Uh, very well said. I like. I really appreciate that, your perspective there. You're phrasing the resist authoritarian oversimplification. I have that right? Yeah, I, it's it's such a good insight because it's a pattern language recognition, which, you know, we're always fond of in the permaculture community. It's this pattern recognition because a pattern, when you can name it and identify it like that, you can see how to address it in multiple fields of thought and how it can become a problem as it becomes a pattern of thinking. Thank you for listening to our second installment of our PLLT listening series. This is an ongoing series where we're interviewing friends and colleagues and entrepreneurs in the field of regenerative agroforestry, permaculture design, and we're exploring with them what are the opportunities, what are the needs What are the ways in which we, with Permaculture Living Lands Trust, can best serve where the real work is? Thank you for listening. Permaculture Perspectives, Andrew Faust, PLLT Listening Series, number two. Stay tuned for our next one. Number three will be with Zach Elfers, and we'll be releasing those in the ongoing cumulative collection and as standalone sessions. Visit us at permaculturenewyork.com and look at our class offerings there. Become certified with a PINA-endorsed program.